0: Today's interview is with my first non-musical guest, Holly LaCroix. She's a Boston-based author of two books, The Swimming Pool and The Half-Brother, and is currently working on a third. I met Holly in the spring of 2015 during my brief stint as an amateur journalist covering the debacle that was the New York presidential primary election. You can review some of the work we did together at nyelectionjustice.org putting together a timeline of the failures of the NYC Board of Elections leading up to and following the primary. And if you're really up for a deep dive into the subject, I'd recommend clicking on the YouTube link at the top of the site to see the hours of testimony that we collected from public hearings documenting the many, many, many problems that voters in New York encountered on that day and continue to encounter. So During our discussion, we reflect on the work we did with New York Election Justice and how we've been staying active and maintaining our sanity since Trump's election. I hope to have more members of the New York election justice team on the show in future episodes, but Holly and I became very close friends during our work together, so she was my first choice for diving back into this period of my life. I also want to say that since this is my first foray into political terrain, I'd like to open the door to listener commentary. If you have any questions, comments, or especially disagreements with the perspectives that holly and i discuss in this episode please share them with me on twitter at bzdug that's b-z-d-u-g or email bzdouglas at gmail.com b-e-e-z-y-d-o-u-g-l-a-s i love criticism as long as it's of the thoughtful and constructive variety anyway enough of my monologuing let's get on with the show You know what I realize is kind of auspicious for us to be recording this tonight. It's the New York primary is coming in. And it looks like it's not surprisingly Cuomo's going for it, but also somewhat not surprisingly, I'm seeing lots of reports of strange things and, you know, hashtag New York primary problems.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What are the results so far?
0: I just noticed that there there's articles about voters showing up. Finding out that they've been purged,
2: right? Exactly. A
0: unique. A unique one I've never seen before. Um, someone called out that the New York City Housing Authority was sending residents, mostly people of color, to remain home from eight a.m. to four p.m. for an apartment inspection. What? Like out of nowhere.
1: Well, and Someone's I also scared. saw a. a- an article um, that they re-upped from last year. So do you know when you had, if you were already registered to vote in New York, like if you were a new voter, you could register much more recently. But if you were a New York, had, were already registered in New York to vote and you weren't a registered Democrat, you had to register as a Democrat 11 months ago.
0: Yeah, and that was kind of, I remember there were strange, arcane, Byzantine rules like that that shocked people when uh, the New York primary was coming up for Bernie.
1: Right, and nothing, nothing has changed. Yeah,
0: so that, that's a good lead into, this is how you and I met working on the ad hoc little citizens group, uh, New York election justice, and part of what I want to talk to you about was just sort of having a post-mortem of that, and looking back, and, and I don't even uh, recall how exactly you came to be involved in that, because you live in Boston. Oh,
1: I was trying to remember that today, too, and if I had, I don't know, if I really wanted to dig in, there must be some way, there must be some kind of Facebook way back machine or something that you can go and dig into your messages, and I was just, I was so active on Facebook then, and I'm not now, I've, I've, I'm still on Twitter, but Facebook, I'm, I'm just done practically. And, um, and so I was trying to remember how I actually got involved. But I think, I think I was in a lot because I had started Writers for Bernie. I was in a lot of Bernie groups. And a lot of it, you know, I just there were just interesting people that I had met. And and I don't so I don't remember when this New York The election justice part started. I remember Yvonne Goujole, who I've never met, but, you know, knew on Facebook. I remember her posting all the time about registering voters before the primary. So there might have been some of you I might have known beforehand. And after the primary, of course, it was just such a complete shit show. But, you know, it, it is interesting. I was thinking about that was such an interesting time. And I think you were like me, in that I mean, I think you'd been probably more politically active than I had been, but it was just this—it was this very exciting time because I feel like all kinds of people felt empowered to to do things, you know. And here we were, we we felt empowered to like investigate, you know, and and which sounds a little bit—I don't know—it sounds very naive and adolescent now, but at the same time. I think it was really important because nobody else was investigating.
0: For me, it aligned perfectly with like, I had just quit my job and I was going to give full-time freelance a shot. So I just, I had my days to myself. And what activated me was on the day of the primary, having close friends show up to the polls and told that they weren't, on the rolls as Democrats, coupled with seeing major stories from the local New York press, uh, like Bridget Bergen, uh, writing about the, the voter roll purges from the databases. So, and it all just started for me, like the day after the election, just feeling that it was heavily, you know, there was a heavy hand pushing things. And so I showed up at a protest outside the Board of Elections, and that's where I met Yvonne. She was definitely the one who was like, we need to organize and we need to, you know, be putting pressure somewhere and we got to do something. So I just was just like, yeah, I'm down. I have time. I'm pissed off. And I know people that this personally affects on top of myself. I mean, I I didn't have any trouble voting, but I, I had a decent circle of friends who did. And then paying attention on Twitter and Facebook, I kept seeing that story. Pop up over and over and over again of people showing up and being told that they weren't a Democrat.
1: I'd seen that story so many times already. Like there had been the disaster in, um, wasn't it Arizona where that the primary was just a utter and total disaster?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people who had been paying attention to all the primaries were noticing that pattern. Yeah, they they had uh, didn't they suddenly closed a bunch of polling stations and.
1: Right, and people they, people waited in lines for hours and hours and hours, and it had. So I've been hearing these stories nationally about voting, all these all these weird registration things, and all these weird voting irregularities. And quite honestly, what I was seeing, you know, mostly on Facebook, I guess Twitter too, but I, like I said, I was more active on Facebook than in these groups where pe- everybody was blaming Hillary. Everybody was blaming the Clinton campaign, you know. They're the ones who, they hacked the machines, they did whatever. And I remember at the time, because I was never, I was never a huge Hillary fan, but I was, I never thought she was the Antichrist either. I mean, I don't think she killed Vince Foster, you know, whatever. She just. Oh, no, no. But she was not, she was not my choice, but I saw people saying, ah, and you know, now A, how many of those were actual American people and not bots, um. But B, I said, you know, no, that the Clinton campaign wouldn't do this. This is something else. There's something something weird and nefarious is going on. And it never occurred to me that it was Russia. But I, I just, at the time, I'm like, something's happening and no one's looking into it. And, and and that's one thing that, and all the stories I've seen about Russian interference, I mean, I really wonder what the FBI
0: I got to say this, though, I've thought about that in terms of like, well, all the strange things we were encountering with database purges and stuff like that. They were all, you know, if there was malicious intent there, it all benefited Hillary. And to me, you can't have it both ways, like to say that like Russia interfered to get Trump elected and then say, unless the thinking is that, oh, Russia knew Bernie would have a better chance against Trump. And so they were subverting him, which, yeah, I mean, something doesn't make sense. And, and the, the means and the motive and the opportunity are, are all there for the Democratic Party.
2: And
1: I think that's why I got involved with New York, because it just I thought this is this is so wrong. And, and, and also, it was such a it was such a turning point for the Bernie campaign. Well, and that's why I say it makes
0: sense to me that they would have pull, put pressure on every lever they had. Just to ensure, even if it was a lock for Hillary without any um shenanigans, that if he'd have, I think even if he'd have just made it close, he would have kept having the momentum he needed. But if he was soundly defeated there, the narrative would have been like, oh, he, he had some nice moments, but he's done. And that is kind of how it worked.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I totally agree. If he had come close, if he had won, it would have changed things. If he had come close... But that was that was kind of the beginning of the end.
0: I want to kind of cover what we did was like the key things I remember we put together. We have that timeline of things going back to years before this primary. When was it? Like March of, I want to say 2013 was this the first story of the Department of Investigation uh, in New York targeting the Board of Elections for oh, very corrupt practices. Then the things about you know, where they purge the voter rolls to retroactively ascribe that to Russia doesn't make sense because they didn't deny that they did that. They said, oh, yeah, we did this, but they were all people who should have been purged. And, they, you know, they, they stood by it and they, they didn't say that, like, it was an accident. They didn't claim that we don't know how this happened. You know what I mean? And if if, if it was Russia, that immediately would have been their defense. So going back before the primary ever happened there were things like you know New York was sending out the wrong dates and times or just confusing le- like postcards to people on the rolls and then they had to waste a bunch of money sending out corrected you know a correction to everybody then there were things that to me aren't really hackable where there was a uh, a law school had this huge voter registration drive on a campus Probably, you know, it's, it's safe to assume a lot of new voters who were excited about Bernie and voting for him, they didn't even make it into the database to be purged. And then people started discovering that their party affiliations had just completely changed. And then, yeah, then there was the day of the primary, all sorts of people reporting that they showed up and were told that they are not a Democrat the day right before the primary is when WNYC reported 60,000 people had been purged just in Kings County and th- and that number doubled the next day to 120,000
1: i i remember all this and i think had become aware of how crazy these crazy things that were happening i think it started with with Arizona and i was just appalled to to see how the vote was being treated across america and you know, th- th- this was not new. I mean, my gosh, we had we had 2000 with Florida. We had um 2000, was it 2008? No, 2004 with John Kerry. We had an, an Ohio. It, it, but this was the first time for me, shame on me, that I really had been paying that much attention. And I just, I did have this naivete, like, I cannot believe this is happening. I couldn't believe, once I started looking into it, I couldn't believe that the vote was handled so casually and and just you know people who filled out affidavit ballots like they basically admitted that they just didn't count them you know they didn't even look at them i remember all those hearings that you went to right with all the that's what i was i was going to talk
0: about was um that was another part of it was which was really thrilling and scary and infuriating was throwing myself into this and being a person on the ground there, I was, yeah, attending every public hearing I could get to initially just to sort of observe. And the first time was when uh, right after the primary and the the place was just packed with person after person after person, some people being, you know, more cordial than others um, or, co- or even just coherent in their frustration and you know great a whole gradient of of between frustration and just outright rage and uh indignation and so that alone was sort of just like there's something here Good morning ladies and gentlemen my name is Sandra Ramirez I'm a Marine Corps veteran and I went to war in 2007 for OIF and OEF and I live in Bed-Stuy Brooklyn
2: I came here today to talk about voter incident reporting that I took when I was volunteering at the Working Families Party.
1: I received numerous calls, not even numerous calls, one after another, phone calls of people
0: who couldn't get to vote, who were being turned away at the gates, who were being denied the opportunity to fill out an affidavit ballot. So I was was a poll watcher, I was observing the process. It's an open process. This is supposed to be open to the public, and uh, I was made to stand behind the ropes. Until I got a certification, so I got my certification. Came back the next day. I checked out the, uh, you know, the absentee ballots. People were, it was a, it was a bipartisan group. They were they were um, counting ballots, opening ballots in front of me. I was able to check out the tallies, but um, you know everything was great. Uh, they were all they were polite. But when it came time to the the, the affidavits,
2: that's when the you know I, I started seeing some secrecy. I was told I could not see. Um, where they were verifying ballots like
0: ballots were being verified behind closed doors in another room like they were being counted in another room and i sorry they were being uh, processed in another room verified and then we, they were brought into another room where we then got to see them be counted but we only knew what was going to be uh, we only we only got to see the ones that were, were verified
3: so we're, we're kind of curious where are the ones in the back room
2: hi my name is Laura Delhauer. Um I, I went to, I was a registered Democrat in the state of California. I went to re-register, I live here now, uh, in the state of New York uh, this year, and I registered, I uh, went to register before the, the March 25th deadline. Uh, I turned in my registration at the Board of Elections. Uh, I was then notified the week uh, of the deadline that, I, by Bernie Sanders campaign, that I was not registered. So I called the Board of Elections and I asked what was up. Uh, they told me number one. Uh, that if I had done it online or via mail sometimes those, those don't go through. That's unacceptable, that's completely unacceptable, but I did register in person and uh, and after three days of them telling me call back tomorrow, call back tomorrow, talk to this person, this person doesn't exist, no one would have told you to call seconds. back and talk to that person. Uh, finally someone said you might want to come down and re-register. I went down the final day and re-registered uh, and they said we, as far as we're concerned you never came in here, you never registered to vote
1: the problem we have is under the circumstances you're talking about when people move out of the city and then <clears throat> they show up and they're not on the books and they have to fill out an affidavit ballot obviously you guys need to check and see they're registered in the city but what happened this primary election is that people didn't move out of the city and show up and think they were supposed to be on the books and they weren't they were changed. My sister was switched to an active. She's lived here for five years. I was switched to no party and I called a month ahead of time and was told I was registered Democrat. Yeah, my name is Jesse
3: Cervantes. Uh, I, I registered in 2008. I was previously independent. I became a Democrat so I could vote in the primary. And, uh, you know, when I went to vote and, you know, same thing. I just was non-affiliated as a party. And you're saying, you know, how could that happen? You're acting as if this is absurd. But you have two people in this room with about a hundred people and I would suggest that if you had a larger polling of the, of the rest of the city, you would see there were thousands and thousands of people this happened to. It's yep. not strange. This is the clerical error on your guys. This is your guys' clerical error, not mine. Hi, yes. Um, my name is Angelica Nizio. I've been a registered Democrat since 2004 and I have actually practically the same exact situation that Angelica has. Um, I have a screenshot from April 1st where I was a registered Democrat. All of my information was correct. On April 6th, I was no longer enrolled in a party. Mm -hmm. When I went to the Board of Elections, they told me that, yes, I had filled out a form in 2013, uh, that I I guess I failed to check off uh, party enrollment. However, this makes no sense that this change was made two weeks prior to the primary. Hi, my name is Andrew Fader. I'm a resident of the Bronx. Uh, I was a volunteer poll watcher on behalf of one of the delegates, the authorized representative. When I went to go uh, to the Bronx and in Manhattan to see the canvas of the ballots, I was not allowed to see any of the invalidation of the affidavit ballots. I said, well, in that case, how do we know that there might not be some that aren't actually invalid because those people were removed from the voter rolls like we heard about? Uh, I was told I would not be told how many invalid affidavit ballots there were. I was not allowed to know how many had been invalidated or how many would be invalidated. I was also told that thus far, as of yesterday, only one third of the affidavit ballots have been canvassed. That means that it is, there's no way that they can all be done by today. So if the board says that the affidavit ballots have all been counted, not only is that demonstrably and evidentially not true, it is also criminally negligent. For the minute, board to ta- it make an inaccurate tally, which it knows it is inaccurate. Pursuant to election law, section 9, 209, I am entitled as a poll watcher to be have to have insight into the canvas to know how many invalid ballots there are, and I was denied that right. Uh, I worked as a poll worker on, on the election day, and my first observation came during my poll worker training. Um, and I don't know how serious this is, but it just rankled me. So I was informed that uh, poll watchers are supposed to be composed of bipartisan teams of Republicans and Democrats to ensure no partisan bias. And they the workers, poll, workers, poll, poll-, poll poll workers. Yes. And then I was also told that sometimes there's shortfalls of Republicans, so that if they would just arbitrarily assign me as a Republican, I should accept that and not contest it, because otherwise people might ask questions.
2: I am a New Yorker. I've been here for 31 years. I'm a lifelong Democrat. But I have never in my life seen, so, heard so many incidences of election fraud here. And as, as common ground here, we should all be alarmed. If we don't investigate this, so I'm begging you. I am begging you, begging you, begging you just delay by one week, two weeks, to really give us some time. One minute. Sh- one minute, and uh, less than that, so that we, we can beg as New Yorkers, as fellow voters, that we withhold the certification one week, just one week, so that operative word that we keep bringing up, investigate, because if we don't investigate, I promise you, we all lose in the end. Please consider that. My very deepest thanks very, very much.
0: This many people showing up this frustrated um, from all walks of life. It wasn't like just out there activists who show up to get mad about everything. It was, is a really broad spectrum of
1: demographics. And I, I was going over the whole thing today, you know, New York and just the whole, the whole experience during the primary. And it does feel like 2016 was different. And I don't know if it was, I think it was a whole collection of things. I think it was Bernie. I think it was Hillary. I think it was Trump. I think so many people who hadn't been involved in the process felt so much more committed than they had ever been.
0: One of the things that I did in in addition to showing up at public hearings and observing and even questioning some of the commissioners about things that that seemed like the discrepancies, um, I remember when they tried to say that they went through and validated some like hundred thousand amounts of like provisional ballots in the and like the course of whatever it was like a weekend almost. And, and I, I remember it felt like a really cool, like journalist gotcha moment when I, you know, I went to a hearing and I asked, um, what's his name? Michael, whatever on Friday at uh, the oversight committee, uh, testimony. Um, I have here some notes from what Michael Ryan said. First of all, he made, he said that, he used the words that this was clearly troubling this election we don't see that sort of reaction when you actually interact with him as a, as a member of the public but he tried to placate the city council and say they consider this clearly troubling what's more he stated that the board had instituted an intense this is a quote an intensive review process of all affidavit ballots and that each ballot in this and in the invalid pile was scrutinized for potential eligibility over and above the routine invalid and valid process and today i went to the commissioner's hearing and i specifically asked him can you tell me what you feel makes this qualify as being intensive or over and above your routine and i was given a very long answer exhaustive answer about well every affidavit ballot that came in, we went to our computers and we printed out and we have a stack of paper, you know, I, you know, this gesture is this big. And we went through that and their voting history and everything. And I just had to do a quick spreadsheet today and just say, if it took them what he's describing, printing it out and reading what you'd print out conservatively, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we're talking about 30,000 hours worth of time. And if I'm trying to get, an. I've asked him, what was your staffing levels in this audit? I didn't, I got a, we'll get back to you later. And Bridget Bergman has, from WNYC, has asked them similar questions about the totals of affidavits from previous years, so we can do a, she's been stonewalled continually on that. And according to my calculations, if they had a staff of, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, and they're all working 10-hour days, doing nothing but looking at those affidavits, it would have required 50, like, the total number of days is 2,500 days. Let's say, though, they had a staff of 50 people. So you break that down, that would have still required 50 days. But on, on top of that, I also, what was really kind of invigorating to me was just feeling empowered to, I just started calling people. I talked with, like, the director of Common Cause. I talked with, you know, uh, the people at the Brennan Center and all these established um, voting rights watchdogs. And they were the ones who really validated and said, no, this has been going on for a long time. This is just the first time a lot of people are paying attention and have been really affected by it.
1: You know, the the fact that 25% of affidavit ballots were counted, I mean, because the affidavit ballots were all these people who showed up who weren't on the rolls who thought they were. And they said, well, okay, you can file an affidavit ballot. And that's really depressing. And it makes me think that we should have stayed on it.
0: And that's the thing that really drives me wild with, um, I'm not going to deny, you know, it's, it's impossible to deny at this point that Russia was taking an active interest in our affairs over here. But it really chafes my caboose to hear that, Russia hacked our election because the only thing that gets held up is doing that is like there were like one or two places where they were doing phishing scams to try and get access. But most people when they are most commentators in the news, when they say Russia hacked their elections, they're referring to the DNC email leak. If you know if that. It it looks more and more. And the thing is, like, that's not – to me, that's very nebulous to say, like, oh, because of that, all these people didn't vote for Hillary. Whereas, like, you can tangibly point to look at all the people in Arizona. Look at all the people in New York. And then then we're not even talking about the Republican side with systems like Crosscheck and, yeah, going all the way back to Florida, the way they purged their databases and just searched for names that are, like, 95% African-American, like – almost everyone with the last name washington like some high like percentage of like 90% is african american and things like that and those people were deliberately purged from the rolls so like we have hacked our elections far more than russia ever could right
1: right no it's when people say oh it's russia oh it's russia and it's it's very easy to just make it a black and white thing and blame the other be- whereas it's hard <laughs> as we've seen th- this this new york election system is is a is a Byzantine wreck and and fixing it is going to be really hard but but I will say that I feel like New York I don't know but people are so aware or seem to be so much more aware of these issues nationwide and like for instance um there's a lawsuit in Georgia right now that they've they've they're on it and Georgia they want to there's a lawsuit to throw out all their all their voting machines because they don't have paper ballots and they' have proved that they're incredibly easily hackable and and you know, that's there's a lot to be done, but i I do think a lot of people kind of woke up and said, "Wow, we didn't realize how bad this was." like like for instance, th- there's no constitutional right to vote, which is astonishing, but it's just it's kind of implied, but it's not there there's it's very hard to to say that your rights have been abrogated because it's not in the constitution that you have a right to it.
0: Well, that's what I'm talking about when I say I get frustrated with uh, fixation on Russia interfering with our democracy when we're doing a damn fine job of interfering with our own democracy. The other thing that really, um, I immediately was almost 100% skeptical of the claim that you know russia was responsible for the dnc leak um initially i just completely dismissed it because of the the tacit effect of that narrative once it was put out there that like this was russia was responsible for this leak because the effect of that narrative getting uh picked up meant that none of the mainstream press was reporting on the contents of the DNC email leak.
1: I I would know I would want to go back and look at, at the email stories cuz I feel like the Podesta emails were covered were covered pretty well. And I don't know, and, and you could also say my god, they possibly in an attempt to be balanced, they covered the hell out of Hillary's emails. They just, you know, they they, they kind true. of made this false equivalence between all of Donald Trump's scandals. And Hillary's email server.
0: No, and you're right. You're right that that was them in a sort of ham fisted way. Like, well, let's 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 balance things out.
1: Right. They they were saying, well, she's got something bad too, and they just hammered and hammered and hammered it, and you know, and they covered the Comey letter and without really, you know, with total credulity and and so, and you know, it, it, this is what's so confounding about Trump is is yeah, the press is. Prejudice against him, but shouldn't they be? I mean, like, the man lies. The man is completely incompetent. I mean, you know, I don't want to go, go down this road, but it's it, it, the whole the whole thing is it is just a perfect storm politically, and the twenty sixteen election was absolutely a perfect storm in in every way and. But I love seeing, I mean, there's so many things that haven't changed. There's so many things that are just as bad as we've seen with the New York primary tonight. But I do feel like so many horrible things have happened, but there's so many things, so many concepts and ideas that have entered the mainstream that were were nowhere close to that during the 2016 election.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've always said that it seems to me, you know, the silver lining of Trump becoming president is that the left became a bit more, became unified in a way that I don't think would have happened under Hillary. You know what I mean? Because there would have been this reflexive side of it that would have defended anything she said. and, And there was already that fracture in the primary. And I'm curious as, you know, as a woman, how you felt about like there were a lot of people who just took up the cause of her candidacy, seeing it as being wholly a feminist issue And, and just denied that, that someone could be a feminist and against her candidacy.
1: Yeah, no, that was, that was, that was something that was not something I anticipated. um, Because I just thought of Hillary as such an establishment figure. I mean, yes, I knew, obviously, I know she was a woman. Hillary to me, I didn't, I thought of her as establishment first and a woman second. But I, you know, I know lots and lots of people who, including my own daughter, who were incredibly inspired by her campaign and who were devastated when she lost. And I was devastated, but, but sort of for a different reason. And it was really hard to, to be for Bernie sometimes because of that. And the, 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 ref, the, the reflexive anger I would get. And, and I, I was just not used to being a pariah. <laughs> it was really interesting. and, my um my writers for Bernie co-founder and I, she had it much worse than I did. She lives in New York, and we were you know gathering writers to be in this in this group, and there ended up being over two hundred of them, including Pulitzer Prize winners and National Book Award winners, but far fewer than I thought. Just because I thought you know writers and writers are artists, artists are outsiders, outsiders are going to gravitate toward Bernie, and that turned out not to be the case, and um and Uh, Marie who's in New York she actually got unfriended and you know yelled at at publishing parties her agent got mad at her and I don't know if that's true but like people in remember somebody got mad at her an agent or an editor or somebody and sort of the the publishing establishment was so thoroughly Hillary and um, we didn't anticipate that we just it was just it just never occurred to us that that it would be that ugly, and um, but I will say this: it's you know I was talking earlier about how we were just we felt empowered to just get out there and and speak and be a part of things, and I've I've felt empowered since the election to to keep speaking and keep being out there saying what I'm seeing, and I've been I've even been on TV a few times, which is really crazy, and you know I give Hillary credit because. She led this charge of women saying we are legitimate voices. Listen to us. And even though she's not like my political favorite, she actually absolutely has been at the head of this wave. And so I'm, you know, if, if I have to turn in my woman card because I don't think she hung the moon, then, you know, that's a problem. But, but I do give her credit. Um, but no, but being for Bernie was really, and being a woman was weird. I had a lot of weird and sort of painful encounters because of that.
0: Well, it was definitely, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a tricky rhetorical or, you know, political road to navigate where, um, there was no denying that there were people who had problems with her because she was a woman, you know, like the way she would get called out for things that's like, well, if a man said that you wouldn't be, giving her any any problems over that but my I mean my um reasons for wanting Bernie over her was just more of her policy her foreign policies and um on a on a really 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 I don't want to say it's superficial but it's like on this sort of visceral level I had this just problem with the dynastic aspect of having you know Bush Senior, and Bush Junior, then Bill Clinton, and then his wife, and it's like, okay, so we're like a monarchical democracy or something at this point.
1: Exactly, no, and and then you know people will say, oh my gosh, Chelsea needs to run. I'm like, oh my god, over my dead body. Or or Michelle Obama needs to run. It's like, no, 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 no. It's it's just no, no dynasties, no dynasties. It's and um, it it was so. the uh, the experience of being for Bernie. I mean, like I said, uh, I didn't really think about the establishment one way or the other before this election. And you know, like I said, my hub- husband was a journalist. Boston is actually a fairly small town. We know a lot of people in politics here, and because it's Massachusetts, they're all in Democratic politics. And you know, I, I have it was a very new experience for me being at a cocktail party or a dinner party. And I would say something about Bernie or writers for Bernie or whatever, and I would just get the stink eye, and I would get condescended to like nobody's business. And you know, I'm used to being, you know, part of the. I guess I was used to being part of the establishment in a way.
0: Well, I, I mean, that's the. I mean, the, I, I would see the same sort of revulsion or or resistance from before there was hashtag resistance, the same sort of resistance from, you know, what I would call just comfortable liberals and who were very much in their own liberal bubble. But I also I have a lot of family in Ohio who were just, they were against Hillary, but for reasons that I would not at all be in line with. But they all were like, you know, if Bernie... I could I could vote for him. Like, they would have gone for him over Trump. And that was the main reason why I was like, she she can't win. Because she, she can't win over those people. She's only going to win over the people who are already for her right now. It's honestly, you know, when, when Trump won, it, I, I wasn't really shocked. I was like, mm, kind of going the way I thought. Oh, I don't know if I told you this story. So the night Trump was elected... Right about the time that it was looking like it wasn't that no one had called it because they waited to the last minute to call it on all the channels, even though it was pretty clear which way it was going early in the night. Dominic, my oldest son, comes downstairs crying. He's like, I I had a nightmare (laughs) and that had never happened before. Not ever. He's 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 come out like shortly when it was time to go to bed, and then like he hadn't fallen asleep and was like, oh, "I can't sleep. I'm having bad thoughts because I, you know, we saw some scary thing in a cartoon or something." But he'd never woken up from a dead sleep hours after he'd gone out and said, "I'm having a nightmare." I'm like, "Oh man, this kid's this kid's got some some empathic energy going on or something."
1: Exactly. He's you know, it's I say to people, I don't want to get like too woo woo, but I do feel like. I just feel like there is funky energy going on on this whole planet right now. And you, yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that a little kid would like sense that energy, you know, it's um, I, I can I, I can believe it. But it's no, I, I wasn't super surprised either. We had some friends over and they were just like beside themselves. I mean, and I obviously was not happy and I was I was surprised, but I wasn't shocked. I wasn't. It didn't blow me away because I'd been on Facebook. I I'd, I'd been listening to people. I'd been. You know, I have a lot of relatives down south, and and not that you know those states were ever in doubt, but just I don't know. I wasn't. I wasn't surprised. And actually, I have a friend who, um, <clears throat> a former journalist, uh, actually former editor of a major metropolitan <laughs> newspaper, who's now teaches journalism and um he emailed me the next week because we we had spent a lot of time together that summer and i remember his wife at one point i said i said why are you for hillary and she said because it's time and i'm like oh that just that to me that was not a reason i mean of course at that point it was hillary versus trump and i wasn't going to be for trump no way but but just the, the sort of the unthinking it was that was the liberal bubble the unthinkingness of it just really bothered me and um Anyway, and, and he he emailed me the morning after the election <clears throat> and he said, Bernie would have won. And, you know, that, that drives Hillary people crazy. And I totally get why it does, because it's, it's unfair. It think, I think it is misogyny. I, mean, I think it's a huge part of why Bernie would have won. Because he could have gone toe-to-toe in a totally male alpha dog kind of a way. Well, you know, it's funny
0: that these are the same liberals who would you know, probably chastise me or kind of condescend if I were talking about like I want this, you know, candidate who's per- who's perfectly aligned with my ideals, and they'd tell me like pretty much just try and drill some pragmatism into me and say like you know that. But it's they weren't going to accept it the other way. Like, well, okay, but if we're going to accept that misogyny is a major factor in our society, still then aren't you also being sort of pie in the sky idealistic thinking that a woman was going to win in that environment
1: yeah and, and that, that's absolutely true and it it's so tricky because you know when do you give in to that and when do you you know that that pragmatism versus idealism i mean that was that was the whole that was the primary fight, right? It was, you know, because Hillary, you know, it's it's ironic that Hillary in the primary was the pragmatic choice. And then in the general, she was the, according to this, the idealistic choice. Um, but that that drove me crazy. The whole like be pragmatic. I mean, there were so many people who I, when I was, when I was organizing for Writers for Bernie and, and I realized I needed to approach people one by one, I would ask people and they, you know, a good number of people said, you know, I think Bernie is terrific. I love his ideas, but I just can't support him because he's just not going to win. And he, they were talking about the primary. They weren't talking about the general. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, that's not a good reason. <laughs> that's not, that's not how it works. It not, at least not at this stage. It's just, it just,
0: it's not a good reason. And Well, the thing was everyone, what drove me nuts was just knowing that, you know, if Bernie had won the primary. All the people who were for Clinton, the comfortable liberals, and people who were just flat out anti-Trump were going to vote for him. But there were a lot of people who were for Bernie that were not going to go the other way. They just weren't for whether they were good reasons or not. And so it boiled down to, like, how many people were voting. It, It was a, you know, it was a perfect like you said, a perfect storm, but of an election for everyone getting at their base to vote against the other side. I think there were a lot of people who voted, who didn't vote for Trump. They voted against Clinton, just like there were a lot of people who were not voting for Clinton. They were simply voting against Trump. And so here we are now. And how did you sort of deflate or pull back from politics or did you shift your focus
1: well so 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 i'm a novelist right so i i was very busy with writers for bernie i was like totally in it during the primary but i was getting tired and when i when i you know when bernie lost the primary when the primary was essentially over i thought okay i've got to kind of keep my finger in this a bit until the election, I've got to kind of do my part for Hillary. I didn't, I didn't do a lot, but I, I, I wrote, I wrote several pieces urging people to vote for Hillary. And, 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 um, because there were so many people who, who were like, yeah, I'm going to vote for Trump, but Bernie will be really, really powerful in the Senate. And it's like, no dude, civics. No, that's not how it works, you know? And, um, but, but yeah, I just thought I'm November 9th. Day after the election, I'm I'm done. I'm going to go back into my writer cave because I was really kind of desperate to do that. And then it was all different, and I got involved with um, Free Speech for People. So they were um, they were working on this initiative to pass local resolu- local impeachment investigation resolutions, and so we got one passed here in our town, and it was an amazingly educational process. We got our city council to pass this resolution calling on calling on our representatives to call on Congress to start this investigation. And some people thought we were crazy and what is the point of this? I thought and still do think that it's really important as an educational effort because so many people just do not understand What's in the Constitution? They don't know what this process of impeachment is, and this, of course, this was way before Russian collusion and everything else. This was based purely on emoluments violations, and it's absolutely what the founders, you know, designed these clauses in the Constitution for. Um, to you know, they were very specific that that presidents could not take, could not benefit. From foreign money or domestic money their, be- their their businesses could not benefit you know they couldn't take money from foreign powers and it, you know and trump was impeachable the day that he took office because of the way he handled his businesses and and was you know we've seen has you know has continued to benefit his his hotel he's making money hand over fist he goes to mar-a-lago blah blah blah, blah. it just it, it's absolutely a constitutional violation and it drove me crazy when people would say to me well you know, impeachment is a political process, meaning we don't have the political, there's there is not the political will to make this happen yet because Democrats didn't control Congress and, and whatever. And like, you know, it was not written as a political process. It is not in the constitution as a political process. It's in the constitution as a remedy to a problem. And it was not, yes, it's political in that, Congress has to vote on it, but that was not the primary um, definition of it when it was written into the Constitution. It's, oh my God, you know, the 25th Amendment, impeachment, all these remedies, they are not constitutional crises, they are remedies. People need to understand what a powerful document the Constitution is, and, and they don't. So
0: Back uh, at the end of the Bush administration, like right at the end of it, Uh, I remember Dennis Kucinich started pushing for the idea of impeachment and I was really for it just because I I really thought it was important that a precedent be set that what they did to lie us into war with Iraq should be very forcefully repudiated and that should be made into a line in the sand. And then Obama was elected and I was really wanted for him to – you know initiate invest or the democrats in general to like okay you guys have everything you got all the power now you should really repudiate what the republican party did and we were told to look forward and not backward and i think that was is a massive mistake and then there were all these ways you know during the obama years i was constantly at war with the comfortable liberals who would defend everything he did and never they they wouldn't abide any any forceful criticism of him either because they were saying like, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're giving ammo to the tea party or they'd make excuses for him or say, no, he's playing this long game of 11 dimensional chess. Um, And my worry was exactly what happened, which is that like if we don't repudiate these things or rein in the policies of a, of the unitary executive, then one day when the pendulum swings back and the, Good guys are not in power. They will have all these tools at their disposal. It was under Obama when I saw, cause under a Bush administration, I became aware of real, really what authoritarianism and, and tribalism and how toxic and pervasive it is in our society. And then seeing it manifest under Obama with all these, you know, progressives, so called progressives and, and liberals, not even batting an eye at things that would have sent them out into the streets. If it was happening under Bush,
1: right, and that's what, and that's the kind of thing that you know. To me, the the part of the Trump administration so far that has been the hardest to take, the most painful, is Republicans completely repudiating their supposedly their core conservative values. I mean, the federal deficit has exploded. You know, there are our civil liberties. You know, forget it. I, I I I did believe in these rock rib Republicans who maybe I didn't agree with them, but I thought they were principled. You know, I really did think that there were some principled people out there somewhere. And it turns out there are not. And I think if you hold yourself to the highest standards, it's never going to be a bad thing. You know, that's what I believe. And that's very, it is very idealistic, but I think it pays off in the long run. Um, of course, then that kind of flies in the face of you've got to play dirty to win. And now, you know, because we're now all encouraging Democrats to who, who are who are not getting down on the dirt, who, are, who just constantly let themselves be be played. We're like, no, no, no. You know, you've got to play dirty, too. And I, I, I guess I don't I don't know. Well,
0: well, one thing like, you know, we're not I feel like we're not going to see them. Do the same thing with Kavanaugh that the Republicans pulled off with Merrick. You know they were they were able to just stonewall that confirmation until Trump was in office, and and Repu- and Democrats could do the same thing, and you know using the same argument to say like the primaries are coming up. I I'm worried that they're 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 going to let it go through and they're going to be like oh no we'll we'll get them next time
1: and it, it, it you know is so. So, according to my own argument, is there, is there a benefit to sort of a long-term, you know, when they go low, we go high? Do we, you know, does, does retaining the moral high ground pay off in the end? You know, I just said it did, but I don't know. I don't know.
0: I, 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 I'm, I mean, I'm torn, on, I'm torn on so many things. Like, You know, I, I've built through you, you hooked me up with Free Speech for People, and then I, I helped them build, impeach Donald Trump now. And then they put together that website, The Impeachment Project, which is like a hub to other, you know, uh, lines of attack on Trump for like divestment and different things. And then the, the, the uh, book, it's uh, the platform for promoting that. And I think, like I said, I still think it's a good. it would be a good thing in our country to finally impeach a president. If there was ever a president who deserved it, it's him. Everyone though immediately calls out that like, well, Pence will be worse. Um,
1: no, 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 no. That just no, no, no. It that, that is an example. I think of you know, stick to your guns. Be be consistent.
0: Well, also, it it would really do. I think if Trump were successfully impeached, it would sort of put Pence on notice. But I worry about you know when I think when I think it through, impeachment could be initiated without all of the, you know, a lot of Republicans getting aboard, I believe, but it can't be, he couldn't be convicted without turning a lot of senators. And I believe that so much of like the press and just the people as a whole would, you know, adopt this idea that like, ah, Trump is gone. And they would give the Republicans a lot of credit for coming to their senses. It, there would be this mentality of like, things are OK now. Like There would be so much Trump fatigue that they would continue to do horrible, horrible things on immigration, deregulation, tax policy. But the press would act like now we're back to normal.
1: However Trump ends up going away, um, I think that is probably what's going to happen. I mean there I think that's just inevitable. Like you said, there's gonna be Trump fatigue. People are gonna be people are gonna be dancing in the streets when he's gone. I personally think he's gonna resign.
0: I think a lot of people have this mentality that Trump is like um, Sauron or like a bad guy in an Avengers movie where you, you you take out the the main baddie and his army just evaporates.
1: It's incredibly I, I think it's incredibly important to keep emphasizing the fact that Trump that Trump is a symptom. He is not a cause. And he's a symptom of, of, of a lot of things that have been going on. What he has done, you know, he, he, is, he has set new, he's exploded old norms and set new norms. And there are all kinds of things that, that, that aren't going to matter ever anymore. Just this—the stuff that he that he and his administration get away with every single day—that in any other administration would be, you know, a major major story—and it's just nothing because it's it's just we're drinking from the fire hose all the time. And I think we're not going to know the effects of Trump on our institutions until he's long gone. I mean, it it, it the the reverberations are going to be felt for a very long time. Put it that way. But it's I I have no patience with the oh. Pence is going to be worse, as bad or worse argument. Because, again, I I think that Donald Trump should not be president. He is not fit. He has violated the Constitution in dozens of ways. He is exactly what the founders did not want to happen to this country. He should not be president. And so we need to impeach him. And it doesn't matter who's next. But I do I do think that there's so much there's so many exciting things going on, too. And I don't want to be, you know, things are happening.
0: Well, as disappointing as it is that Cynthia Nixon lost, I just love that she ran a competitive campaign. I mean, she you know, she was never really in in striking distance poll wise, but in terms of like. She got so much media, and she advanced so many great uh, solutions to systemic problems. Um, and, and just, you know, that, that was really good to see that get her platform get so much attention. And, I, you know, as we both know, uh, just because a lot of people are going to be disappointed tonight that she's not going to be governor a lot of people those same people are all very invigorated by her platform and are going to continue to demand that and if anything else hopefully they will put some pressure on Cuomo to like all right you're governor but I still want the shit she was talking about
1: this whole career politician thing was was never in anyone's sights in in 1776 and a lot of other things weren't either but i i do feel like you know a lot of people are saying i'm not going to vote for Cynthia Nixon because she was a she was an actress and she's an amateur and whatever i don't i think being a political amateur is not necessarily a bad thing
0: no i mean you're you're talking to someone who um so i have this variety show um that i i've put up for years and called the carnival and we do you know we have musicians and comics and specialty acts and things like that but then we also have these audience participation things Uh, One is we call the feats of strength and everyone does staring contests and and thumb wrestling and rock, paper, scissors. And then the other uh, kind of signature component that I added to it, which was pulled from um, it was inspired by um, a Tom uh, Tom Robbins novel, which um, a character, um, he shows up in this town and they're having their big like winter solstice festival and they're passing around this cake everyone's eating it and like staring at each other and he gets his piece and he eats it and there's this really hard thing in it and he pulls it out and it's a bean and it turns out he was chosen as the king of the bean And this was an actual thing and so he got to spend the whole week as a king and so that inspired i have this thing at the show called random royalty everyone puts their name in a hat and we choose a king and a queen or a two kings or two queens whoever wins and they just get you know they can make pronouncements on the mic they get really good seats and all this stuff but it actually you know just from doing it for years it it made me think like you know what i i don't know how crazy the idea is that like random representation not in it's not entirely but add one more senate seat and one more district representative that is chosen like jury duty and you have to pass a civics test and maybe, you know, to be put into the pool. But then one day you get a letter, and instead of going, oh shit, I have jury duty, be like, oh shit, I'm senator next year. I don't know. I can't see how it could be any fucking worse.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it, it, there's no way it could be. It's the whole Mr. Smith goes to Washington thing. It's, you know, it's like you show up and you're like, wait, you do what? You know, wait, what are you talking about? And, and, that's normal and 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 I, I think I think that would be terrific and this whole political class and you know Washington I, I do feel like this is one element of probably the element of both the Democrats not resisting the way they should have been resisting especially at the beginning and the Republicans just going along with Trump because he's getting their agenda it's because they are in that bubble, they are not out here. They they are, they are just not even breathing real air anymore. Ugh, what a mess. Yeah. But but I do. I, I just think it's going to be <sighs> interesting. Things are happening. I hope we're in a better place in ten or fifteen years. I, I don't know. There are there are moments, or more than moments that I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Not just with Trump, but just in general. I just think we're on a bad course.
0: I don't know. I I have. Um, optimism that is rooted in pessimism as far as our political, because I'm optimistic that the whole political paradigm is going to get turned on its head because I'm very pessimistic about the climate change that I think we are in for. I believe that the, we have reached and passed so many important tipping points and we are doing nothing to mitigate it, that it's going to become uh, an existential issue for us in our lifetimes.
1: And not only nationally, but globally, I mean, it's, it's going to cause, you know, giant migrant crises and
0: resources. And yeah.
1: I mean, my, my, my son, my younger son is convinced, you know, he wants, he's, he's convinced we need to colonize space and he might be right. <laughs> Um, I
0: mean, aside from all the politics stuff that we're working on, I I just want what What are you working on right now? Or are you are you you still pushing books? Are you working on a new book?
1: I'm working on a new book. Yeah, I'm working on a new book, and it's um, I'm excited about it. And the thing about writing books is, for me anyway, is that I have to just totally get into my own world. And one thing that has been hard is that I've I felt guilty ignoring the world because it's a dumpster fire, you know? And so I feel like, I feel like I've spent too much time kind of in this neither too much time betwixt and between sort of not really effectively writing this novel, but not really effectively organizing either, just kind of in the middle feeling angsty and like tweeting too much, you know, and that's not very useful. So, um, so I'm getting back into this book and, and, because I do feel like there was an amazing Masha Gessen piece, um, in the New Yorker, I don't know, two or three months ago. And she was talking about how this incredible fatigue and, and, and anxiety that we're all feeling, um, has taken an incredible toll on art. Like people are not making the art that they would during normal times. They're not, um, they're not writing. They're not writing music. They're not painting because it is so hard to leave the world behind. But I think, I think that my sense from other writers I talk to is that gradually we're kind of reaching the breaking point where we're like, we have to, you know, we, we, we have to quit paying attention and just hope that it's going to be okay and go do our work. Because if we don't do our work, what is the point? You know, I don't want Trump to take that away from us. You know, we, we, there's there's no point if there's no art in this world being made by somebody. Is this is this novel? And and I can't say what it's about because if I do, that'll just kind of explode all the energy and there won't be any left. But but I'm excited about it. So
0: uh, my first guest on this podcast, he had an interesting little theory or just perspective, saying like, do you, do you, he put the question. He's like, do you think artists are sick or? <laughs> and but what he where he was going with is like that there's something in us where we have to create and i i was like you know i 100 agree with you because if i am not creating something or just being keeping myself peripheral to artistic endeavors um i really feel like i get into a funk and i and i i lose myself so um this this whole podcast is kind of like, it's been a great thing for, it's just like, oh, I've committed to like, I want to release an episode a week. So I've got to reach out to people and find artists to interview, go back into my personal history with people like you. And um, that's just been fantastic as nothing else is like, it's a prompt to like, oh, I'm going to call Holly and have a really good conversation with her for two hours.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's fabulous. And I I feel like, I feel like I was thinking about this today that because I am getting that impatience that I've got to sink into the work, I've got to do it, and it's hard. It's hard for me to do it little pieces at a time. That's one of the problems with novel writing. Although I did find that there was a period um, where I was writing a lot of poetry, and that was terrific because it just—it's <laughs> not—it's not the same. It's a—it's a, it's a totally different approach and and process, and you can write a poem in half an hour, and that isn't necessarily a good poem, but it, you've, you've made a thing, and that's, you know, there are times when I'm just like, I have to make a thing, I have to make a thing, because it's, that's how I make sense of the world, that, you know, we, we're taking stuff in all the time, and, and processing it, and making a thing out of it is, I don't know, it's how I operate, so. Um,
0: it's because you're a sick, sick artist.
1: I'm sick, I'm ill. <laughs> I am ill to the core. There is no cure.